0: Welcome to this week's episode of London Heal. I am your host, Tatiana Kasesenov. So many people these days are suffering from anything from feeling weary and just a bit under par all the way to very serious chronic fatigue. I have the feeling this is a disease state which is a pretty new phenomenon perhaps belonging to our modern life and it's a topic which is hugely important and it affects so many people as it absolutely impacts the quality of your life. My guest today is Alex Howard who is an absolute expert in this field. Um, Alex is the founder and CEO of the Optimum Health Clinic, which is one of the world's leading integrative medical clinics um, in the UK, which he set up in 2004 after his own seven-year battle with chronic fatigue syndrome. The team of 20 full-time practitioners have supported over 10,000 patients in more than 40 countries. And Alex and his team have published research in a number of leading journals, including the British Medical Journal Open, Medical Hypotheses, and Psychology and Health. And moreover, the absolute gold standard of research is a randomized controlled trial which is ongoing to investigate the approach of the OHC clinic to treating fatigue, and it's currently underway um, in the UK, looking at NHS patients. Along with founding and leading the OHC practitioner teams for more than 16 years now, Alex is also an experienced psychology practitioner, having led the Therapeutic Coaching Practitioner Programme since 2005, which is training the next generation of psychology practitioners. He also has a daily vlog and a podcast, which includes interviews, film patient sessions, and inspirational recovery stories. And at this point, Alex, um, I just want to point out, Alex also very recently hosted an amazing summit on this subject. I'm not sure if that's still going to be available to the public. So sorry we couldn't get you on beforehand. (laughs) Um, But Please, people, go to his website, check it out. I'm sure you'll have some way of accessing it from there. So first and foremost, Alex, welcome and thank you. With that enormous bio, I can see you're a very busy <laughs> person That's and a long introduction. <laughs> I really, really appreciate you taking the time to speak to me today.
1: Sure, no, thank you for having me. Much appreciated.
0: So Alex um, as I mentioned in the bio and this is a story I hear all the time is that you know we're all walking wounded healers which is you know you don't often start on this journey of discovery to help other people and you know until you've actually had to deal with the problem yourself and that's definitely part of your journey could you maybe just walk us through that a little bit and tell us what happened.
1: Yeah, sure. Um, yeah, I, I certainly didn't set out to uh, set up a clinic treating um, fatigue. <laughs> um, I, um, so I developed a set of odd symptoms when I was just around the time I turned 16 years old. And it was towards the end of doing my GCSEs and initially it was just assumed that I had some sort of um, virus. And weeks became months, and in time, it it, it kind of became clear that I wasn't recovering from that in the way that one would expect to. And seemingly out of nowhere, I ended up with this diagnosis of ME chronic fatigue. And at the time, I would have thought getting a diagnosis would be a good thing, like it would give me some some clarity in terms of, of what was happening. But what I was to discover in time is, of course, a diagnosis of chronic fatigue syndrome is is not really a diagnosis. It's like you go into the doctor and you say, I feel chronically fatigued the whole time. They put syndrome on the end and they call it a diagnosis. So that really was the beginning of what became a seven-year journey. And for the first two years... I I wasn't not doing anything to try to get better but I wasn't proactive in that process and really I was just waiting for either my body just to start to recover which didn't happen or for there to be some kind of evolution through the traditional medical system you know someone that was going to my gp fairly regularly and it kind of became clear over time that neither of those two things were going to happen And I had symptoms from severe fatigue. I was relatively housebound. I'd go to school for sometimes an hour or two a day. I wasn't able to do any kind of physical exercise. I had um, sleep problems, which was a kind of weird thing. You spend the whole time totally exhausted, then you wouldn't be able to sleep, the thing which might help alleviate that. Um, And I think also the kind of fatigue that people experience with chronic fatigue is very different. It's not like you just feel tired. Like as a healthy person, feeling tired isn't an unpleasant experience it's like you just feel tired and you sleep and you wake up and you feel recovered from that but it's a kind of hard to describe just ongoing feeling of feeling terrible like someone that's got the worst hangover or someone that's had you know a flu that just isn't kind of clearing but it goes on for months and potentially years and i i reached this point after a couple of years where it wasn't that I wanted to die. I just didn't want to live anymore in the the kind of hell that, that, that my life had become. And I was helped to realize through a conversation with my uncle, who was a little bit like Gandalf in Lord of the Rings. I don't know if you've seen Lord of the Rings, but it wasn't there. <laughs> yeah, it wasn't there very often. But when he was there, he had just the right guidance and advice and he'd kind of disappear off into the kind of horizon again. And he really helped me realize that if I wanted the circumstances of my life to change, then I was going to have to be the one to change them and Of course, at eighteen years old, the idea that you can become responsible for turning your life around is is a kind of alien concept, and especially when you're suffering from a medical condition a somewhat very daunting um, concept but it really was a major turning point, and I kind of what he helped me realize was that I wanted I wanted to recover more than anything, but I was spending no time proactively driving that process. I was spending seven hours a day watching TV because I was too exhausted to do anything else, but my life wasn't going to change watching soap operas um, and so I started on a path of starting to read some books on health and nutrition and um, meditation and yoga and psychology and I didn't really have an interest in those things initially. It, it wasn't like I woke up in the morning with a kind of great sense of enthusiasm. That I was going to go and read these books, but I was desperate and I wanted, I wanted to get out of the situation that I was in. And over the next five years, I did start to fall in love with, with, with the healing journey that, that I was on. And I think I read uh, over 500 books. I saw something like 30, 40 practitioners. At one point I was taking 60 supplements a day. I was, ruthlessly determined and committed in the path that that I was on and there was no one miracle answer. I mean, there were different things that helped in different ways at different points. Some things made things worse. I learned a lot about the kind of limitations of not just traditional medicine, but also alternative and intuitive medicine. And I developed an allergy that I still have to this day of anyone that claims to, to have all the answers or anyone that claims that there's one thing that is the answer. Um, that served me quite well in my, in my clinical career. Um, and so I basically, just to kind of end this part of the story, I, I recovered. Um, I wrote a book about the journey that I'd been on. And um, I within a year of that book coming out, the Optum Health Clinic, which, hadn't, which kind of got created in that process. Um, ended up being completely and utterly inundated with people that, that wanted help and support. And over the years since then, that's been a whole fascinating journey of how that's evolved. Um, but um, yeah, really at the heart of all of it was my own my own journey and um, the kind of realization that healing is possible, but it is particularly when you're dealing with severe chronic illnesses. It's, it's complicated, it's nuanced, and it's, a, it's also a journey that people have to be open to going on.
0: Right. There's there's a million things that you said in there that that I want to go in and and pick and and deepen a little bit. <clears throat> First of all, I think it's important maybe just to um, clarify what we're talking about. So you're talking about um, chronic fatigue syndrome. There's also ME. Or what um, and that stands for.
1: So that stands for myalgic encephalomyelitis. I don't say that very often. (laughs) (laughs) That's
0: why I left that Um, one to you. um, There are
1: certain words I
0: can't say. (laughs) I mean,
1: I've I've come to more recently talking about fatigue-related conditions, which is a a pretty poor description, really. But it that would encompass things like um, ME chronic fatigue, which tend to get used interchangeably. Right, chronic fatigue syndrome is more of a a US. Kind of term. We tend to use ME more in the UK. Um, the patient communities tend to prefer ME, mainly not because it's a particularly good label and it's not particularly accurate, but chronic fatigue syndrome has so many connotations which are unhelpful and problematic that it's, a better, it's the better of the two evils. Um, fibromyalgia, I would include in this category as well, right. to put it in layman's terms. chronic fatigue with pain as a primary symptom. Mm -hmm. Um, I would include um, uh, post-viral fatigue, adrenal fatigue, uh, somewhat include Lyme disease, Um, really any chronic illness where fatigue is one of the primary elements. And particularly when we're dealing with these, what, what medicine would classify as medically unexplained illnesses. So conditions where there is not a traditional medical explanation for, and we can if, if appropriate come in some of the reasons why that might be mm-hmm. um, and you know there's a spectrum of, of, of these conditions from people which are we have patients which are housebound um, bedbound light and sound sensitive in darkened rooms with with earplugs up until people which are working full time with a family life and they just don't have the energy that they should really have and life is a real struggle and the crazy thing is most people are more tired than they should be I mean Mm -hmm. that's kind of you know there's a people talk a lot about absenteeism in the workplace but actually presenteeism in many ways is a bigger problem which is people which are there they're just not really there because everything's a struggle and effort and they're not feeling or performing at the level that they, they could and when life is a struggle that that sucks the joy it sucks the pleasure it sucks the the kind of the satisfaction of living in many ways out and I think yeah. there's a lot of people which may have other diagnoses which actually if they were to to deal with underlying issues around their energy would make a lot of other areas of their life work much better
0: yeah, especially like if you work all day and and use the up the energy that you've got and then you don't have any left when you go home and sometimes one can be so tired it's hard to relax yeah. um so i i understand the difference so that means that if a if a patient goes to a gp for example there's no there's no clinical diagnosis this is this is a subjective evaluation is that correct it's
1: diagnosis by exclusion right so if someone goes to a gp with um what subsequently is diagnosed as being ME chronic fatigue they will along with the gp's doing their job properly they will go through a series of um, standard blood tests they will investigate it, are there because there's many things that can create cause fatigue where there's a clear diagnosable condition for example many cancers could actually so there are cases where people think they have me chronic fatigue and actually what they have is something which has a, a much clearer uh, diagnosis and a potential treatment path that comes from that so it's a it's no one should ever be self-diagnosing it's really important that someone goes and, and gets medical investigation but assuming everything else is kind of clear and there's no other explanation, then if you have a certain set of symptoms, uh, fatigue is one of them. There's other symptoms that um, that could be included, such as muscle pain, sleep problems, um, headaches, that if you have, um, there are different diagnostic criteria used in different countries and by different people. But the basic principles, if you have fatigue and a few other symptoms for more than six months. Then you, and there's no other explanation, then you would, in principle, get an ME chronic fatigue diagnosis. Um, in some diagnostic criteria, it's three months, not six months. For teenagers, it's three months, not six months. Um, a good predictor of long-term prognosis is early diagnosis, um, partly because, well, I would argue partly because if you get an earlier diagnosis, then it, you're at least more likely to stop doing the things which are making things worse. Um, and so, getting that clarity is is important. Um, the, there is not a lot of consistency around diagnosis, and there are some GPs, particularly in heavily populated areas, which may see you know several dozen cases in a year, and there are others that may see one or two cases in a year. And there you know I think there's a lot of work to be done. It has got better, but there's a lot more work to be done in terms of. Of getting clear diagnosis, and you know that's before we even look at potential treatment paths.
0: And, w- and what is the attitude these days? I mean, of course, it's impossible to generalise, but I mean, up until reasonably recently, um, things like fibromyalgia and chronic fatigue you kind of got the feeling that your GP thought it was all in your head and you know the the typical kind of Freudian hysterical woman in her mid-50s go away relax go to the hairdressers and it'll all be fine um I think that that opinion has kind of shifted a little bit um and I think people are um, certainly general practitioners and practitioners in general are taking this much more seriously is is that your experience too because I think think that's part of the frustration for many patients is that they actually feel that, that that they're they're kind of being treated as though they have an imagined problem.
1: Yeah, I think we've come a long way and I think we have a hell of a lot further to go. I think it, re- it there's such a variance of experiences that people have. Um, I do have, I have a lot of empathy for, um, for GPs. I think uh, chronic fatigue ME is a really, and fibromyalgia and Lyme disease in that group, is a, it's difficult for them. You know, it doesn't fall... Within the traditional medical models of, of how they look at things, and we can come into some of the reasons why, why that is. Um, people don't become doctors to disappoint their patients. People become doctors because they want to help people. Absolutely. And working in the in the NHS, you know we have some good personal friends which, which are GPs, and it's a really tough job. And you have very little time with your patients. You have to make. Fundamentally, life impacting decisions quickly, often with less information than you would like to have at your hands to make that decision. And at the same time, so you know, I really, I, I, I really get the frustration, the challenge of that. And it's a scandal what's happened if you talk at it from the point of view of the patient communities. And you know, to the point of of people's lives being destroyed really by. Either not having a, a diagnosis, or having a diagnosis and absolute lack of access to any effective help and support. You know, there's been a lot of issues um, over recent years around access to um, to benefits, for example. So people which are genuinely ill, not meeting the criteria, which are you know not fit for purpose, and then you know ending up in positions they can barely survive, let alone have any access to any kind of support or, or treatment. And so. It's understandable that the patient communities are incredibly frustrated. And, and part of the outcome of this is it f- perpetuates this problem of the perception of the medical world that we're dealing with a psychiatric condition rather than a physiological condition. Because when the patient community go and see their GPs, they're angry, they're frustrated, they're anxious, they're scared, they're struggling. So the medical world sees that and labels that. Rather than realizes that nine, 99 times out of hundred, that is simply a reaction to what's happening on a physical level, and if the physical level was addressed, a lot of that stuff wouldn't be there in the first place. So it's it's a a lot of this goes back to the lack of having a consistent biomarker. If you look at the vast majority of medical conditions, diagnosis is based upon a, a clear process of a blood test or. Um, some kind of scan or some kind of investigative process that has clear parameters that gives you a binary yes or no outcome. When there isn't a consistent biomarker and it's a diagnosis of exclusion, then the perception is, and and it is the highest level of arrogance when someone says, I can't find anything wrong with you, therefore that means nothing's wrong with you. But nonetheless, that has been some of the history of of this group of of illnesses. And that has then bred this kind of cultural perception of kind of what what you're alluding to around kind of this is just kind of depressed middle-aged women or it's yuppie flu or it's people that you know just a bit too sensitive and can't really deal with with society. Um, I have worked with um, A-list actresses, I've worked with CEOs of enormous companies. These are not weak people. (laughs) If anything, it's the opposite. These are people which are are too strong and too hard on their bodies. Um, But those cultural perceptions do cause a lot of problems. and And it also results in people not getting the emotional care and support from their own families because there's this kind of question mark in the background, maybe they're just making this up. Right,
0: right. I always find it quite fascinating, though, how the medical profession can kind of dismiss... Uh, a psychosomatic disease, acknowledging that your mind can make you physically ill, <laughs> but somehow never seem to be able to understand that perhaps a mind might actually make you better. But we'll get onto that in a, in a little while. Um, what about things like burnout, for example? I mean, burnout syndrome was something which I think really hit the news perhaps in the last 10 years and has kind of certainly opened up people's eyes to the fact that at some point the body just says no you know um do you put that in the same category with with the fatigue dis- disorders
1: yeah i, I do I, i'm not always popular when i do because <laughs> <laughs> I, I i i see it as a spectrum and mm-hmm. i would see that as as the kind of less um severe end of the spectrum um there are people that are still Kind of hanging on for a, a single pathogen which is causing the severe cases of me chronic fatigue and uh, don't like the idea that they that they could be a spectrum but certainly my observation is, is a spectrum and you know there are people which end up really really unwell for two or three months and then gradually recover and get back to normal life there are others that struggle on a, a low level for years and there's every variation in between there are people which are severely ill you know, for decades sometimes, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, this is an illness that absolutely can devastate and destroy people's lives, and it can destroy families as well because of the of the ripples of the impact that that has on the people around that person.
0: right, so let's get on and actually try and figure out what causes this so is Is there a classical medical definition which perhaps integrative and alternative practitioners might view in another way, or is it is it still open as far as classical science is concerned?
1: As far as classical science is concerned it 's wide open <laughs> as far as they, um, they know
0: nothing say. so to speak yeah. well, <laughs>
1: there, you know, there's been some there 's been some interesting evolutions in in research, but there 's really very little cohesive agreement about what what actually is going on um, you know those working in the functional medicine world um, those working in the integrative medicine world um, have been looking at these these conditions for um, you know, 30 years or so. Um, and, you know, we we know a lot more than we did. We don't know it all, um, but we know a lot. And, you know, the truth is that there is no one answer. That, as I was kind of saying earlier on, I'm allergic to anyone that tells me there's one answer because there's not. There are some people where there really is a very specific moment of something happened, be that an exposure to organophosphate poisoning I remember the case years ago of, of a guy who was drinking water on the, on the farm and it turned out that someone had just poured um, pesticides into the um, and it gone into the into the, the water supply and he drunk that and, and he'd become ill as a result of that um, or people that have had a tick bite and they've developed Lyme disease and there's a very clear moment that something happened Often, even in those cases, not always, we still have to look at the overall health and resilience of the system. Um, why does one person get bitten by a tick that's carrying Lyme and develop chronic Lyme disease, and not another person, for example? So there are there are still some some considerations um, around that. Um, for other people, it is a much more gradual onset, and there's a kind of gradual weakening of their system that happens over often, you know, many years. Um, the way that we look at it is it's a little bit like a boat and it's a boat that has loads on 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 this boat and it's not you know it's, it's like the final straw that breaks the camel's back it's not any one single load but you have too many loads over too long a period of time and either you just have a gradual onset of just stacking up too many loads or you have a weakening of the system of those loads and then that final event be it the tick bite, be at the virus, you know, be it Epstein-Barr virus, for example, or you know, be at the significant emotional trauma of um, you know being in a in a uh, war zone or something. But it's like that's often just the final load on the system. That if all those other loads hadn't been there, it would have been more resilient to be able to handle that. And so a lot of what our work has been about over the years has been figuring out what are those different loads on that boat. And that's one of the first things we do with any, any new patient that we work with is what's been their history. And we have ways of categorizing these different loads and kind of putting models and frameworks around that. Um, and sometimes the question is simply a case of taking those loads off that boat and you take enough of those loads off and suddenly the boat that's underwater and sinking starts to float back up and 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 has its own then resilience to to recover um, and other times um, you know it's not what caused someone to get sick in the first place it's what's stopping them from healing like what's the thing that's in the place of the healing process so again, there's there's a certain amount of of nuance and um, uh, kind of uh, analysis in terms of figuring out what what's going to be important for each individual, using maps and using experience and using a lot of kind of clinical protocols. But you have to piece together we we talk about it being like a jigsaw, and you have to piece together the different pieces in the right sequence.
0: I have a feeling that's actually the case for for a lot of chronic diseases in general um, is, is, as you said, you know, there is no one trigger and there is no one solution. And oftentimes I've, I've experienced that too, that that apparent trigger is actually just the last thing in a chain of events. It's the straw that broke the camel's back. I mean, looking at your own history, though, I mean, you were 16. What What's wrong with a 16-year-old boy that, that that system is already so loaded? You know, I mean, yeah, you should I mean, be like in the prime of of health and vitality at that age.
1: Yeah, um, without giving you a a detailed life story, I had quite a a complicated childhood. So there were some emotional factors. Um, I think it's likely that I had some kind of viral trigger. So Mm -hmm. I think I may well have had, although I didn't test for it at the time, may have had something like Epstein-Barr or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um, I'd had digestive problems for three or four years prior to being being diagnosed with irritable bowel syndrome. So there was digestive function issues that were happening. I think there are genetic elements. I think some people's system is just weaker, and therefore it's you know, like canaries in the coal mine, it's a bit more sensitive. Um, there are sometimes cases where you look at them and you just go, you know, it's, a, it's kind of odd. Like it's, it's particularly with children, as you're kind of saying, where you, you, know, you think, well, how is it possible they can be, it's not like some major trauma that's happened. But you know, if you have a child that comes in and they are emotionally quite sensitive, and they come into an environment which is not necessarily neglectful, it's just not particularly emotionally nourishing and responsive, an impact of that can be that the nervous system doesn't feel quite safe. And so it kind of goes into a site state of um, uh, hyperalert, hyperarousal. That alone over a period of time can have a massive impact in there 's some fascinating work um, by um, Dr. Robert Navio around cell danger response that looks at the impact of the system being in a state of stress on mitochondria function, which is our our cellular energy production and the kind of um, kind of very brief summary of that is effectively when we are in a state of chronic stress, our mitochondria which produce our energy go from general housekeeping and energy production to kind of protection and kind of keeping it keeping us safe so when you're under chronic stress after a while your energy production starts to get inhibited so it doesn't have to be a major event it could be what we would call just kind of some mild developmental trauma just like subtle things or look at it from another point of view if someone has um something that's become a bit of a rage over recent years I think perhaps a little bit disproportionate to the reality, but nonetheless, it's still a thing that's important to consider. Is small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, or Mm placebo? SIBO, yeah. So you could have, um, you know, you could be a ten-year-old kid, and you could get food poisoning, and you could end up getting an overgrowth of of bacteria in your small intestine. And then after a while, your um, breaking down of nutrients is not working effectively. Therefore, your body starts to get depleted. Then your adrenals kick in to try and compensate, and then they start to get depleted. And then as your adrenals get depleted, you start to feel more anxious because you're just not, you know, you're not producing your stress hormone. So that starts to create, and then you get in a bit of a loop with that. It could just be food poisoning, but you've suddenly got three or four bodily systems now that are starting to get impacted by it. Um, So sometimes you have, you can track things back to a relatively simple um, trigger. But it isn't just a case of fixing the trigger. It can be a case of understanding how different systems in the body have then been impacted and responding to that.
0: Right, right. Looking at it from a from a more kind of, let's say, physiological, biochemical perspective, I mean, the, the two energy systems you mentioned, one is obviously mitochondrial function. And I think we are beginning to realize how delicate and precious these little organelles are. Um, uh, I think we we've kind of ignored them a little bit in the past and beginning to understand their vital role in so many different diseases, from cancer to obviously things like chronic fatigue. Um, the other one, the other system of course, that was very much in vogue I felt for the last few years was this idea of adrenal fatigue. I, I've always had a bit of a problem with adrenal fatigue because Essentially, they don't stop working because otherwise you die. Um, <laughs> so there's something going on. But I mean, I think everybody can get their head around the idea that, that an organ or a gland that's continually stimulated at some point kind of goes, oh, I'm done. Uh, we see the same thing with the pancreas in, in long term type two diabetes, for example, with insulin resistance buildup. The pancreas at some point will just actually just say, I, I can't do this anymore and give up. How How? current is the idea of adrenal fatigue. Has that come away a little bit out of fashion? Because as I said, I I know that a lot of conventional practitioners will just blow that out of the park. They don't even think it's worth discussing. What's your feeling about that?
1: It's a great question. Um, and it, you're asking a question at the, at the edge of my own inquiry at the
0: moment. So, <laughs> right.
1: Okay. So I, I, I'm going to give you an answer that I reserve the right to have a different opinion in six or 12 months' time.
0: Is your um, opinion I'm interested in?
1: <laughs> well, my, 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 I'll, give, I'll give you two conflicting ideas and I'll give you my current opinion. So one one idea is in the nutritional medicine, functional medicine world for the last 20 years probably the idea of adrenal fatigue has been a key candidate let's say in the explanation around fatigue related conditions for for obvious reasons and there i could come up with many many cases where we've given people some kind of intervention to support adrenal function and it has significantly improved their energy levels hasn't necessarily been the whole answer rarely would it have been the whole answer Sometimes it's been a, a lift from 40% function to 50% function. Sometimes it's been a kind of, um, you know, lift from 40% to 70%. I mean, it, it's different in different cases. And that might be giving people um, uh, adrenal glandulas. It might be giving people some of the precursors, it might be people give, uh, B vitamins. Um, it might be giving people, not that we would do it um, in Oxford Health Clinic, but there are cases and then it can be a place for it by hormones. But it's undeniable as a clinical picture that there are people that you do adrenal work and you have a clear improvement in their function. That's why adrenal fatigue has got traction around it. Um, right. It's not a placebo effect. It's not something that supplement companies are making up to sell supplements. It's, it's a real thing. And, and I've got you know, come up with numerous evidence to, to support that, that position. At the same time, the other side of this, of this kind of argument, in fact, um, one of the interviewees on the Fatigue super conference, a guy called Ari Witten, um, talked about some work that he's done going through dozens, if not hundreds, of studies that have been done over the years looking at adrenal function and adrenal fatigue and trying to validate whether it's a real thing or not a real thing. And his conclusion from that research is there is no evidence to suggest using adrenal testing that it's a real thing. Now, because a question mark, so then comes come to kind of my, my own kind of current thought, thought process around this. There's a question mark around the standardization of adrenal tests, adrenal stress right. index tests, saliva tests, which, which lots of people use and, and, and we use. Um, I think sometimes adrenal um, stress indexes can give some quite odd findings, um, I think sometimes they can lag but uh, behind the, the, the clinical picture of, of where the, the patient is. Sometimes you can see a significant improvement in someone, retest and not see an improvement in the test, retest a few months later and then see the improvement in the test. Um, I think the idea that you do an adrenal test, you diagnose someone as having adrenal fatigue and you assume that's the only thing that's going on and you treat that with an expectation of full um, uh, resolution, I think, is is, is probably quite naive. Um, I and I kind of I don't know if the reason why the research around the adrenal fatigue is is uh, not is not is not supportive of the idea is down to the testing or down to the the the, the, the absolute concept of it. Um, I also think, anyway. Adrenal fatigue is a, is generally a symptom if it is let's assume it is a thing, it's a symptom rather than a core issue anyway. Why would adrenals get fatigued? Well, they'd get fatigued because someone is pushing themselves endlessly in such a way that whether it's the adrenals or mitochondrial function or the digestive system or the immune system but they're basically just screwing their whole system by the fact they're putting it under too much pressure the adrenals is an easy one to focus on but all the bodily systems become impacted by that or are the adrenals actually a result of let's say digestive function isn't working and therefore mitochondrial and so let's say we're not breaking down food we're therefore not getting the raw ingredients for producing energy through the mitochondria. So the body's not producing energy. So it goes to its backup, its reserve tank, which is its adrenals. So we get adrenal fatigue. Well, that's just the end of the, of the sequence. And actually, the resolution is not necessarily to give loads of adrenal support. The resolution is to fix digestive function, to give enough rest and time for mitochondrial function to start to work, and then the body will self-correct on the adrenal function. Having said that, going back to the point I was making a bit earlier, sometimes supporting adrenal function will help because if you've got someone who is in a high state of tired and wired and the whole system is kind of irritated, ironically you can put in adrenal support and it calms the system because it's going hyper because it's it's crashed right. so putting some support and allows it to settle there's just for me too much evidence of that being effective to discard the reality of that um, but I I think that the, the problem is when people go, "This is adrenal fatigue," as opposed to going, "No, the adrenals are fatigued, but the whole system's fatigued." That's a consequence of that, and the resolution is not just trying to fix the adrenals.
0: Yeah, that sounds like a a a very wholesome approach, and it is actually one that that I would share because it it actually just makes much more sense if you if you think about it. You talked a lot about diet um, and not having a functional gut. Uh, every day, we're learning more and more and more about the importance of the microbiome. Um, every day, we're learning more and more about the fact for the last X number of years, we've all been eating complete rubbish. So <laughs> um, what, how much of a role does that play in, in your patients? When, you, when you, I mean, you have the marvellous opportunity to see a, quite a large cross-section of patients. In how many of, is that really an issue?
1: Um, correcting diet alone is rarely enough, Mm -hmm. but not correcting a bad diet is often a major problem. (laughs) So it's kind of one of those ones where you would think changing something as fundamental as what you're eating. I think sometimes people's expectation of what is going to come from that is, is they end up disappointed. They think, well, if I go on this amazing diet and I cut out all this stuff and I beef up all of this stuff, I'm going to feel amazing. Um, but if someone has not got the right diet, it can be a massive impediment to the recovery process. And, you know, sometimes there are some very easy wins in addressing diets. Like for example, um, just balancing blood sugar can have an mm-hmm. enormous impact mm-hmm. in stabilizing someone's mood and someone's energy levels. Um, and often that's just a case of eating less carbohydrates and less, uh, you know, less sugar and eating more good quality protein. I'm not. I'm generally, a fan of extremes, so things like um, people with chronic fatigue, particularly trying to go into ketosis, is pretty aggressive on the system. Um, someone has mild fatigue; they may may do great doing that. Um, but cutting out things like um, sugar, cutting out often dairy, cutting out gluten, if not grains, generally, uh, you know, we, there are a lot of nuances of how we would would cover this, and it's not my primary area of expertise. But as a general principle something like the stone age diet seems to work for a lot of people. It kind of makes sense because we ate that diet for thousands of years. Um, and um, it's also a good way of balancing blood sugar and energy levels. Um, and how extreme people need to go on diet is is very patient specific. For Some people, they need to make significant and, and medium term, quite disruptive dietary changes. And for others, they can make modest changes, and that's enough because it's not the piece that's most most of the focus in their process.
0: Right, right. Moving on a little bit more to the psychology, um, you you talked about trauma and so on, and and actually what you said very much reminded me of 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 the message. A lot of of doctors like Gabor Mate, for example, who talks about that it's sometimes isn't what was done it's also what wasn't done so the lack of something um that's obviously partly your area of expertise how how big a role does it play i mean i really want to make it clear to people listening that that something which is caused by um a psychological condition doesn't mean you're making it up it still results in real physiological symptoms just to emphasize that
1: yeah one of the ways that i put it is that there are things that are psychosomatic like Mm -hmm. they are they don't exist except in your head Mm -hmm. and there are things where there are mental and emotional mechanisms that have real impacts on the body so to give an example um it's something that 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 one sees i've I've never seen it in my clinical career i've I've, in a slightly perverse way i always wanted to see it um but um Something that used to be a much bigger issue than it is these days is phantom limb pain. So someone Mm -hmm. would come back from a from a war zone, for example, and they would they would lose a limb, and they would still have pain in a limb that didn't exist. That is psychosomatic. There is no limb. There is no Mm -hmm. nerve endings in that that exist there, but there is a there is an experience of, of pain. That's a whole other the reasons for that's a whole other thing. That's probably beyond the scope today. Then you've got things where you have certain thoughts, or you have certain feelings, or indeed you don't have access to certain feelings. And that has real physical impacts. Like it ha- like I was saying a bit earlier, like it has impacts on mitochondrial function, or it has in- impacts on digestive function, or it has impacts on autoimmune conditions. There's been fascinating research um, around people that have had um, sexual abuse that hasn't been processed, are statistically more likely to have autoimmune conditions. It makes sense. The cells are attacking themselves. Like there's, there's, a, there's a, an enormous body of research that demonstrates not that you make something up, that it's a kind of it's an invention, but what we experience as a living, breathing, psycho-emotional kind of being has an impact on our physiology, and you know people that think. The mind and body are not are not related. I mean, to give you a couple of examples, um, when you take I'm not I'm recommending this. It's not something that I'm, I'm into, <laughs> but you do a line of coke, it changes how you feel. If you sit there and you um, think about something in your life that is traumatic, it changes your biochemistry. Like you change your biochemistry, it changes how you you, you think. You change how you think, it changes your biochemistry, and these things over sustained periods of time have real impacts on the body. But also, it's not just that, for example, trauma or or stress, how it impacts us. One of the other ways that that we look at this is there are certain what we would call energy-depleting psychologies, like certain ways of relating to ourselves and relating to the world around us, which are inherently depleting and draining. So, for example, um, we talk about an achiever pattern or a helper pattern or an anxiety pattern. If you are someone where you define your self worth by what you do and what you achieve in the world, and you have low self esteem to start with, you are constantly pushing and driving yourself to feel of worth, to feel valuable. Mm-hmm. That becomes very draining for the physical body. So for example, you know, you wake up in the morning and you and you've got you've got flu and your body's like, I I need, I need to rest. Then you think of all the things you have to do and achieve, you ignore the, the feedback from your body and you go and push yourself. If you do that consistently, that is just if the body is a, although it's a lot more complex, and so the body is a car, you're just running the car into the ground. Like you're, you're, you're you're depleting it you're draining it another example would be a helper pattern if you're defining your self worth by what you do for others let's say you get back from a really heavy day at work and you're you're exhausted and all of your kind of inner landscape is saying I need to go to sleep and to rest like you spent the whole day fantasizing about lying on the sofa and watching Netflix
0: mm-hmm. and
1: then you're
0: been there. <laughs> we're all <been> there, right?
1: <laughs> so your friend then calls you and is in some, some drama. And you then completely ignore how you feel and you spend four hours on the phone to them or you drop everything and go and take them out for dinner and go and listen to all of their problems. Doing that as a one-off is you know, it's fine. And we, we all have moments in our lives we need to be there for people we care about. But if that is how we're defining our self-worth, if that is like our modus operandi for our life, you do that for a few decades and that becomes depleting. It becomes draining. Another example is someone has a predisposition towards anxiety, that there's a kind of they tend to worry about things. It's not any one thing, but if you're constantly sending the message to your nervous system, "This is dangerous, this is scary, I'm not safe, this is not okay." there's an ongoing impact over years and decades that that depletes and drains the system. So we have these psychological structures or these kind of these these programs of how we function and it's not that we have these programs therefore we make up symptoms to get attention it's that these things become depleting and draining we yeah. go back to what i was saying earlier and about loads on a boat rarely is it just that someone was an achiever or a helper or both or an anxiety type or had trauma or the fact that they had bad digestion for many years or they had you know some sensitivity through their genetics or Um, They were exposed to, um, you know, some kind of chemical poison or other. It's too many factors together over too many years, which either alone is enough or then you get the cherry on the top of it and then everyone gets obsessed by the cherry or the final straw and ignores all of those other factors that over years or decades has had an impact on depleting
0: the system. Right, right. It makes complete and utter sense. Essentially, it seems to me what you're saying is that this kind of let's call it disease category um, is another one of these lifestyle diseases. It's sort of a product of of modern life. So, bad food, high stress, you know, diversely nurturing or unnurturing environments, um, demands, so on and so forth. Lack of sleep, I think, is is huge. Um, is is this something which is beginning to come into the sort of the general psyche? Because I mean, I, quite honestly, if we don't shift some of these things, we're just going to see so many different problems. I think perhaps in one patient, this may come out as chronic fatigue and another patient, you know, they're gonna eat the wrong stuff because they're stressed and depressed and end up with diabetes. And another patient, it could be cancer, who knows. Uh, long-term, we're looking at neurodegenerative diseases um what's your feeling about that would you put this in that category of of this is this is a reaction to modern life
1: um yes and no um yes because i think what you're saying is true and no because i think there are instances where this would have been true 100 years ago 200 years ago it just would have been labeled differently you know it would have been labeled as hypochondria or you know, someone would have been. You know, if they were wealthy, they would have been put in a wing at the end of at the end of the the house or the estate, and forgotten about. And if they weren't, they probably would have died pretty quickly because they just wouldn't have got any kind of care or support. So, I I, I think it's true to say that you know there was massive trauma. You know, you imagine what life was like in the Middle Ages. I mean, Absolutely. Like, you Absolutely, just didn't live very long. Didn't, I was going to say, just didn't make it past
0: thirty-five. Exactly. Yeah, right.
1: <laughs> um, so, I don't think these are entirely new things. But I think that the the numbers of people affected as life becomes faster, more toxic, more stressful, I think that there is yeah, I think it 's on the rise, and the prognosis is a lot better now than it was ten twenty years ago because we know a lot more than we did ten twenty years ago, and there 's a lot more um, clarity there 's a lot of people doing great work, and I think Someone getting diagnosed now versus 20 years ago is in a much, much better place. Um, and hopefully we'll be saying the same again in another 20 years. Tom. 20 I think, I think years. we will. I think I there's think some, really, some very exciting things happening um, in, in the research these days. But I think it's um, it's certainly, you know, if we go back to this idea of it being a spectrum and the people that are listening to, to this conversation, you know, People which are not necessarily going to meet diagnostic criteria for ME, chronic fatigue, fibromyalgia or whatever, but are like, do you know what? I can't remember the last morning that I woke up and I was like ready to jump out of bed. And if they really honest themselves, they think back to being a kid. And it's like, yeah, when I was a kid, I woke up and it's like, I was excited. Like I was, I had energy for for my day. And then you start to look at your life and you go, you know, some things we've been talking about, do I push myself beyond what my body is saying? Am I making other people's needs more important than my own? Do I feel a sense of um, not feeling safe or anxious in the world? Or do I eat in a way which is really suboptimal to put it politely? Um, you know, do I get rest when I need rest? Do I um am I exposed to a lot of toxicity, either living in a in a city like London or, um, you know, kind of being surrounded by, you know, working on a farm with a lot of chemicals or whatever? Like if if some of those things resonate and you're feeling more tired than you realize that you should, then there are some clues there. And it doesn't mean that someone has to go and live up a mountain in the middle of nowhere. You know, I'm a great believer in people living in the modern world and all of the gifts and the opportunities that that, that come from that. But there are ways of living our potential and being successful in the things that we care about and we're passionate about. In a way which is sustainable and in a way that is healthy and it 's not a kind of either I have to be an unhealthy person and live life to the full or be a healthy person and sit on the sidelines it 's possible to be a healthy person and and enjoy life and live to one 's fulfilled life in a sustainable way
0: absolutely your word god 's ear that's all <laughs> but I totally agree with you but but it takes work these days it 's not sure. it 's not uh, immediate. Um, I can see that our time is is almost over and we've just begun to scratch the surface of this interesting problem. So um, if anybody really wants more detailed information, then I would definitely direct you over to Alex's website. Um, but for somebody listening who's noticing perhaps... Um, they haven't gone to the point yet of of going to a GP or a doctor, but they recognize what you're saying about, oh, you know, that's true. I I just don't feel kind of as good as I did. And they've probably just written it off to maybe getting older or or more stressed or tired. Are there some simple changes that one can make or what's the first place to start if you think that you're actually sadly on this journey?
1: Well, you should always... Unquestionably, go and see your doctor,
0: right
1: because there are many, many things that can cause fatigue. Which fatigue is an early sign, and getting clarity about that could save literally save your life. So, I, I'm a big fan of of the idea. People say, "I don't want to waste my doctor's time." I'm a big fan of, and I'm. I'm you talk to any GP. That they'd so be doctors are for. that time as well, <laughs> <laughs> it's like they'd far rather help you identify something now than than when it's much more serious down the line. But assuming that you've gone down that 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 path, um, are there simple things you can do? Um, yes, <laughs> yes, and no is kind of one of those ones. Yes, in as much as there are things that absolutely you can do that don't necessarily require massive life change, and no, in the sense that. Even those simple things often require a level of discipline and a level of commitment to making change. And one of the privileges of working with the patient community that, that I've worked with for the last um, seventeen or so years is that I rarely have problems with patient motivation because when you work with people who've been ill for years, it's like you ask them to you know strip naked down on their head, knots with circus, and they say what time, where, and when. But like they'll they'll right, do what it right. takes because they've been ill for a long time. And sometimes. The, the hardest patients are those that have not been ill for very long because, actually, it's almost like we have to go on a journey to change things about ourselves and our lives that sometimes can feel challenging to address and to change. And the pain of changing seems worse than the pain of staying as they are. And when that, when that um, balance shifts, that the pain of being where we are is so bad, then motivation tends to be much easier to find. A more helpful form of motivation, though, is rather than that just getting out of pain, is to think about what life could be like if you did have energy and vitality and to use that as something to move towards. And in terms of some kind of headline things to look at, I'm a great believer in rest. And I know that it sounds like a really oversimplified thing, but enough sleep and enough, not just rest like numbed out on the sofa watching, you know, whatever but deep physical and emotional switch off and rest. And whatever, that's different things for different people. But the importance of of, of that um, of reset effectively in the nervous system is really important. Um, nutrition and food is obviously really important. And there's lots of great resources out there, things I would point towards, things like Caveman Stone Age Diet, um, Learning to calm one's mind. Meditation is a very, very helpful tool, and it uh, doesn't have to be in any kind of spiritual or religious context and entirely just secular as a practice of mind, attention, and focus. I have a free 14-day meditation course on my website, alexhoward.tv, that people can go to and, and, and get access to. That's one way to, to start doing that. Um, I think also um, sometimes having a really long and serious conversation with ourselves about our lives. Like if you are struggling with your energy day after day and it's stopping you from really doing the things that matter and bring you joy and pleasure in your life, um, it's probably not going to change until you change it. And the realization that you, there are many things that you can do if you start on that journey. And it's like, nothing tastes as good as feeling good feels and things that you might have to change like what you eat that may seem like a massive mountain when you start to feel different those things also
0: become much easier right right absolutely any last tips that uh, or tricks or um comments that, that uh, as i said we've really only had time to scratch the surface but yeah. is there anything important I- that we haven't addressed that you'd like to just bring yeah. in
1: I suppose um, one other thing I would say, um, and this is without wanting to in any way sound sexist, particularly aimed at the men out there, but not being afraid to ask for help. It's a real real thing in our society of people suffering in silence. And the way that I see it, we all have problems. And there are really three categories. There are people which have problems and don't admit them even to themselves, and they're pretty much stuck. There are people that have problems and Admit them to themselves, but don't tell anyone else about them. Then there are those that have problems that admit them to themselves and talk to others. We are all messed. I mean, I'm not sure the, the, the policy on foul language here. We're all messed up. If, if you'd like <laughs> to a stronger word, please do. Um, But the fact we don't talk about that just perpetuates the fact of the fact of suffering we are not alone in the struggles and the difficulties that we have we are only alone because we don't talk about it so reaching out for some kind of help and support be that you know to me via the to the optimal health clinic be it to a friend be it to a practitioner that's been recommended by someone else i'm i'm agnostic to, to who you ask for help from, but realizing that rarely can we do this process, this, a journey like this on our own. There are many, many very knowledgeable, well-equipped people that can help us and support us. And often it's a journey and one person takes us a little bit of the way and we meet someone else goes the next step of the way. But until we ask for help and support and we initiate that process, then nothing changes. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask for help and realize that when you do that, often what it does is it almost never does someone being vulnerable and open elicit a response of rejection, even though that's, all, that's nearly always the fear. Nearly always it elicits a response of care and support. And if it doesn't, that's about the other person, not about you.
0: Very, very wise and sage advice. And I 100% endorse that I, I think that's that's a real problem is that people are too frightened to ask for help and and in my experience exactly as you said actually usually people are very flattered when you ask them for help they're complimented by it and they love to help you people really yeah. are quite nice so <laughs> Alex thank you so much I'd really like to acknowledge you for, for what you've done because I think you've moved this field really forward you've also um, given a, a, a space literally um for bricks and mortar space for for this problem to be addressed here in the uk um and also i know that you can work over skype with with people internationally um so thank you keep doing good work um we're all really really grateful and um sometimes one's own suffering actually has has a good outcome and purpose and meaning there are three thank tiny you. little I'm questions thank you very much oh thank and you. i mean it from the you know absolutely genuinely from the heart um there are three little questions i always like to ask all of my guests um we talk about mind body spirit medicine here on london here and i like to encapsulate that in the idea of health happiness and serenity so for you personally what is uh, especially after the journey that you've been through what is your definition of health
1: <laughs> um. I could answer that in so many ways. I think uh, to put it in, a, in simple ways, I think health is to wake up and have the energy to enjoy the life that you want to enjoy. And, and that is different for different people, you know, and there are people that have that live with difficult, complex, physical things. They can still live a life of health. It just may have some restrictions on what that looks like.
0: Right. And what about happiness? What does Alex do to get happy and Do you think the pursuit of happiness is actually important
1: it's it's interesting um as a as a man in, that's 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 turning forty next year, what I thought was happiness ten years ago is very different to what's happiness these days. You know, I uh, I probably you wait like, till you like, get like, to
0: fifty. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I'm looking. I'm, I think I'm looking forward to that. Um, I what brings me happiness, at least, is 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 pretty simple. It's spending time with my with my wife and children, and doing. We just had a week in, Um, In the New Forest in England. um, Not a particularly glamorous place to go, but just being together, you know, riding bikes, swimming in the sea, um, you know, simple things. um, But being with those that you love in a kind of open, authentic way, I guess, is, is for me what happiness is.
0: Perfect answer, lovely. And serenity. You you mentioned that in in dealing with chronic fatigue, that meditation and so on is is a potential route. How do you find serenity? I like to think of that as opportunity to turn down the noise. Mm. Um, so, what do you do um, in your own practice?
1: One of my most one of my most favourite things in the world is lying in. I love to be by water. I went to I deliberately chose the university at Swansea in Wales because it. It's kind of like driving rain. If you hold an umbrella, and you still kind of get soaked. Um, But being being by water, I love lying in a hot tub when the pouring rain is kind of cold on one part, warm on the other part. Um, I love being in the sea. Um, Oh, I've
0: got a great visual on that. Actually, I think (laughs) next time I'll join you. That sounds great.
1: Yeah, (laughs) yeah. So I mean, again, it's kind of simple. Um, And um, you know, and I often think as well that sometimes the most creative place, as well, is when I'm if I'm grappling with a situation or a problem, often the most helpful thing is to go and just switch off and, and let kind of clarity arise rather than go kind of grabbing for it.
0: Wonderful. So Alex, thank you. I really appreciate this conversation. Thank you.
1: Thank you. Thank you very much.
0: So, my dear listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode with Alex as much as I did. It's really a fascinating subject. And sadly, we really did not have the time to go into any great depths or details on this subject, but just skim over the surface. But I hope it gave you a little bit of an insight into into the problems and also the fact that it is, you know, a complicated Problem and as Alex very, very clearly pointed out, and I think that was super important actually, is this idea of often what we think is the cause is actually maybe just the last link in the chain, and we need to look a bit more deeply. We will have um, links to Alex's website in the show notes. Please go and have a look and get in touch with him if you need any more advice. Um, He has, as I said, over 20 full-time practitioners in his clinic um, and they do see people over the internet, so you don't even have to be local. Um, And as Alex also said, If you are suffering from any symptoms of fatigue that continue beyond the normal one or two days, please go and see your GP. It's very important, or your healthcare practitioner. And if you really enjoyed this episode and you think it's of value, please share it, distribute it um, to people that you think may also find it interesting. And to help us share and distribute it, we would highly encourage you um, and ask you very politely and nicely If you would go over to the podcast platform that you are drawing these podcasts from, sign up, subscribe, rate and review. And that's particularly the case over on Apple Podcasts, because that really helps us get this information out to those who really need it. And if you would like extended show notes for future episodes, then please just go over to londonheal.com where you will have access to all past episodes. You can sign up there, become a London Heal Insider and receive extended show notes for future episodes. And so my dear listeners, that leaves me to wish you as always health, happiness and serenity.